Open your Bibles to Romans 9. Let's take a look at this. And uh, this is a continuation of what we uh, studied uh, before uh, Thanksgiving. Also want to thank and uh, welcome back those of you that were in the uh, No 101 class, Discovering Church Membership. Really excited about that. Glad you took part in that and hope uh, and praying that you'll take the next steps of uh, commitment. Join our church family. And so let's let's look at Romans 9. Now, at the top of your notes, it says freedom. Uh, we got to do a little bit of review because it's been a couple weeks. Freedom. You know what's interesting about Romans 9 is this. Everybody reads Romans. Most people that read Romans 9 are all concerned about man's free freedom, man's free will. What about man's free will? What about man's free will? What about our freedom to choose? And the irony of Romans 9 is Paul has an opposite concern. His concern is freedom, but it's God's freedom. It's God's free will. It's God's ability to choose and do as he pleases. And, uh, you know, just saying that almost sounds, oh, that almost sounds you know, like, like I, I just, I cringe from that. And yet, why would we cringe from that? Wouldn't we much rather have God be the one with the freedom to do as he pleases when he has such great character rather than being so concerned about us having freedom when our character is fallen and what we do with our choices is very evident. It's self-centered and rebellious and always moving away from God. So when you look at your notes, it says freedom, God's right to do what he chooses. And uh, I just want to remind you that all of Romans 9, all of Romans 10, all of Romans 11 is all explaining one verse. And it's Romans 9, 6. You'll look at Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And I think I have in your notes the crucial question that Romans 9 through 11 answers is this. Has God's word? His saving promises to Israel. Have they failed in light of the fact that so many Jews have rejected Christ and are doomed to eternal punishment for that rejection? And this argument is very, it's very logical. It's very tight. And we've been moving through it. Let's look at it again. How does the answer unfold? The first question, Romans 9, 6, has God's word failed? The the, the question is, hey, it looks like, like God's purposes isn't being accomplished. Look, look, at, look at what happened. The Messiah came. And if the Messiah is really Jesus, then why, why are the Jews rejecting him? And, and maybe, maybe, Paul, you got this all wrong. And the answer is no. God's promise of salvation is rooted in God's sovereign, unconditional choice. And that's the argument of 6 through 13 that we develop. But then unconditional election raises an objection. And the objection is, Fairness. Wait a minute. I, that doesn't seem fair. That God chooses those who will choose him. Is God unfair in choosing unconditionally? That's verse 14. Look at verse 14 in your Bible. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul's answer, by no means. And we kind of summarized it. Unconditional election reflects the perfection of God's character. In all his fullness, he chooses according to his character. And his character is one of showing mercy to the undeserving, but also showing judgment to the deserving. We, we saw that developed in verses 14 through 18. But then there's a third question. And that's the one that we're dealing with now. 
And the question is that of fatalism. Well, if no one resists God's will and God is sovereign over our choices, here's the question. Is God unreasonable to hold us accountable for our choices if no one resists his will? Well, this argument's developed in 9, 19 through 29. So let's read that so that we have the word of God in front of us. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his, his will? The issue is, this sounds like fatalism. <laughs> well, my choices don't matter if God is this sovereign. Well, here's how Paul responds. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And then he breaks off. He doesn't continue his thought. And he says, even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence. That word for sentence is lagos, word for the Lord will carry out his word, his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom. Come like. Now, remember, as we read through this, the questions that are being raised are always being answered in this chapter from a God-centered perspective and not a man-centered one. And we saw that the outline of this passage, very easy to outline, very hard to understand though, because there's a lot of deep things here. Let's look at, first of all, the natural objection. We saw that last, last time, verse 19, very natural. Uh, in fact, a paraphrase goes very well when it says this. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do? We saw that this was a natural objection, meaning this is, this is how human reasoning would, would think. And it's also natural that this is how the unbeliever thinks, questioning God. But it's also a very antagonistic objection because it says this, why does he still find fault? Here's the irony. As we move through God's unconditional election, what we should be amazed at is, why does he save anyone? Why does he say? That's what the believer says. The believing mind that is submitted to the word God says, I'm, I am amazed that he says anyone, saves anyone. The unbeliever 
is looking for ways to avoid responsibility for sin. And he says, well, why does he still blame me for my sin? This is an antagonistic objection. And Paul answers it in an antagonistic, uh, as though he's talking to an antagonist, because in verse 20 he says, but who are you? It's a, it's a you, it's a direct. We also said that it's a fatalistic objection. It only sees fatalism in what God is doing. And we saw, though, also that it's an accurate an objection. He's right. God does hold sinners accountable. Even though he's sovereign, he does hold sinners accountable. And secondly, God is still sovereign, is still sovereign over our choices, though, that, though, that, though no one ultimately resists his will. And how that all works together, we said, is a mystery. And we're going to get farther into that mystery. But I just wanted to say this. That's the point of this whole passage. Even though Israel has rejected God's Messiah, even though the nation has turned its back on Jesus as their Messiah, God's saving purposes are still being accomplished. No one, unbelief, can hinder God's saving purposes. And for that, we should say what? Amen. Thank you. Because that's why I'm saved. Because I had unbelief. I had rebellion. I had rejection. I, though I, I was seeking, I didn't know what I was seeking. And I certainly didn't understand that my seeking was in light of my sin. And yet God's saving purposes was greater than my unbelief. And the same for everyone here this morning who's born again. So we see that it was an accurate objection but just with a wrong attitude. That brings us to the emotional confrontation. In verses 20 through 23, we saw last time that this is a very emotional confrontation. In other words, Paul has come to the end of interacting on this. There's a point where why questions must stop and why questions begin to bleed over into unbelief and rebellion against a sovereign God. But I want to keep asking why. And Paul's going to say, who are you, O man or O woman? Who are you to answer back to God? And we saw that this is very emotional. He's saying, O man, that's a that's kind of like an emotional expression you find in the scriptures. It's a very direct confrontation. Who are you? And it's a very clear confrontation. We move through these uh, verses. As you look through that, he asks four questions. And all four questions in verses 20 through 23, all four questions highlights the big gap between God and between us. And what he's saying is, look, God's way up here, as it says in the Old Testament, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So who are we to be giving advice and judging and evaluating, not quite sure I agree with how you're running the universe, particularly how you're saving or judging people. And so we saw that it's a, it's, it's a very clear confrontation. God is God, we're not. God is the maker, we're, the, we're, we're what he made. God's the potter, we're the clay pots. God's the designer, we're the works of his hands to display his purpose. But we also saw it was an effective confrontation and. I have the four questions there, and you can read through those. And you can go back to uh, org and look up this series. 
see the previous lessons and you can uh, see our development of those questions. So I'm not going to read through those except for that fourth one, the fourth question. And that's what today's lesson wants to focus on. The fourth question that he asked is in verses 20, uh, 22 through 20. Actually, it goes through, it goes through 22 through 23. This is the fourth and final question. And it says there in your notes, the fourth question is meant to confront us with his sovereign purposes in saving people. And the way I've summed that up is the title of this series, The Mystery of His Majestic Mission of Mercy. God's purposes are sovereign. They're majestic, but they're mysterious. But it's a mission of mercy. And that's what we're going to see in these verses. So let's look. And let me read them again. Look at verses. Look in your Bible. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, what's going on here? Let me make a couple observations. And I have these verses laid out for you in your notes because I want you to see that Paul begins an if-then statement. He begins an if-then statement. He begins by saying, what if? Now, when you say what if, what do you expect to come at the end of that? If-then, right? You expect an if-then. Because what's going on up here, this isn't hypothetical. Some, some, some interpreters say, oh, he's just saying, what if? You know, let's just pretend that God's doing this. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, this is what God is doing. This is what he's doing. Now, if he's doing that, then, and then he, there should be a conclusion. The only problem is, at least here in the ESV, you see at the end of verse 23, there's a long dash. There's a long dash. And the point is, that dash is to tell you, he never got to this. He never got to that. And he breaks off and he says, even us. He breaks off into personal application. Now, there's some very cool stuff going on here. Here's what's happening. The natural man, the natural woman, the unbeliever, they look at all these questions and they want to talk abstract. They want to talk philosophy. They want to go call God to account and say, why did God do this? And why did he choose her? And why didn't he choose him? And, and they, they want to they wanna lay it all at God's. And he's saying, look, who are you? And who am I to question God? And then he starts going through, what if God? And then he lays out God's purpose, but he can't even get to the conclusion because he breaks out into what? Amazing praise. Us. He chose us. He didn't just choose some people out there. He chose you. He chose you. He chose everyone who has put their faith in Jesus. So what I'm trying to say is, if you try to approach these issues of unconditional election, these issues of God's sovereignty in an abstract, philosophical way, you're going to be a frustrated and eventually an angry, bitter person at God. But if you approach these with a humility and a faith 
in the richness of God's mercy, you will break off into praise and say, wow, I'm a part of this. And it's not because of anything in me. It's all because of him. And so he breaks off. And so I've included for you what I believe is the conclusion he was driving at. It's from the context. What he's saying there is this. What if God, and he goes through that purpose and all that, and where he breaks off, what, he, what his conclusion is, then we would have, then would we have a right to answer back to God? You know, this is all about answering back to God. So what he's saying is, well, if God's doing this and this, the conclusion is, then why would we answer back on that? Because he's very well within his rights. In fact, he's being unbelievably merciful to do that. But instead of sharing that conclusion, he breaks off and he says, even us who he has called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. And since we're basically Gentiles here, we ought to be saying, thank God. Thank God that he did that. Now, a couple more observations and we'll dive into what the purposes are. First of all, Paul's making a connection between the sovereign freedom of the human potter in verse 21 and the sovereign freedom of the divine potter in verse 22. Because here's what he's saying. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So just think of a human potter with, with regular clay and what would be the answer to that? Does the human potter have, have freedom to do with the clay what he wants? Every one of you are shaking your head. Everyone is yes. No one would question that. Now, what he's saying is there, there's a little connector in Greek that uh, not all translations are showing up, but it's there. He's connecting that thought. He says, okay, now if we're agreed on that, what if God is ex- exercising his sovereign freedom over fallen people to accomplish his purposes? What right would we have to object to that? So it's a connection. Secondly, Paul is asking another question in an if-then manner, and he's doing this to further explain the purposes. Because look at verse 21 again. He says, doesn't a human potter have a right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? In other words, I'm going to make this vessel for this purpose, and I'm going to make this vessel for this purpose. And we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He can make a beautiful, we said vase. Beautiful vase to sit and look at and enjoy. Or he can make a spittoon, which you, you know, or a bedpan. Now, he's got the right to do whichever, right? For those, and, and, and what you make is made for a purpose. You, don't, you, don't, you make vessels for a purpose. Well, now what he's explaining is, says, well, God has the same freedom. And I want to tell you his purposes for making vessels of wrath and making vessels of mercy. So he's explaining God's purposes. Thirdly, as I've already said, God never gets around to finishing the sentence of the glory of God's grace in his life as a part of the chosen remnant and the glory of God's grace in saving many Gentiles whom he has chosen and called overwhelms him and he breaks off into personal application. And finally, what I want to say is that what captures Paul's attention and what is the focus of his joy is in verses 22 through 23. It's God's sovereign purposes for freely doing what he chooses. 
So, let's look at it. I don't know how you can read Romans 9, 6 to to this point. I don't know how you can read Romans 9 to this point and not walk away with this conviction. God is free to do as he chooses with his rebellious creation and with his glorious character. God is free. Now, the question is, what does he do with that? Are you with me? The question is, what does he do with that freedom? And I'm going to present to you a minor purpose and a major purpose. It's exactly what you see here. The minor purpose is verse 22. Look at verse 22. What if God desiring to, now here comes a purpose. Here's his purpose, to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's the minor purpose. But notice, I think the ESV has done a great job of translating verse 23, in order to, in order to. He had a purpose, but then he had a greater purpose. And the purpose of judgment is to actually highlight his purpose of mercy. So look at verse 23, in order to make known. Notice, both purposes is about revelation of who God is, to make known, to show. But the greater purpose, as we're going to see, is to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So let's look at God's sovereign purposes for freely doing what he chooses. Minor purpose, number one, to put on display his long-suffering wrath. To put on display his long-suffering wrath. What is God's purpose with fallen humanity? The minor purpose, he wants to put on display how long-suffering he is before he judges sinners. And that's verse 22. This is the same purpose God revealed during the Exodus. Look at verse 17. Go back to verse 17. Read with me verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. So here's the purpose of the Exodus. Here's the purpose for the ten plagues. Here's the purpose for hardening Pharaoh's heart. Here's the purpose for judging sinful Egypt. For this very purpose, I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Notice, he says in verse 17, that I might show. Circle that word show. It's the same word for show in verse 22. So we're talking about the same purposes. But notice a very important phrase. Go back to verse 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, and then there's this very important phrase, has endured with much patience. Has endured with much patience. What has he endured? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, what's what's endured mean? That word means put up with. You endure your children when they're disobeying. And they won't listen to you. And they're driving you nuts. And you want to kill them. But you choose not to kill them. What are you doing? You're enduring. Okay? You want to put them in a box, as Mark Twain said, and and, and put a little hole for air. And then they still rebel. And so you decide to cork it. 
okay? When you choose not to put them in the barrel and you choose not to put the cork in the hole, you're, you're enduring putting up. Can we all relate? Yes, we can relate. But he says he endured them with much patience. Now, now, oh, ow, that hurts. Oh, we can put up with my kid, but am I putting up with my rebellious, disobedient, back-talking kid with much What is much patience? The word for patience there is macrothumia. Macrothumia. Long-suffering. Slow to anger. What is he saying here? God's purpose with sinners is that he puts up with their sinful, unbelief, rebellious living, and he is slow to anger, He is long-suffering before he brings the hammer of judgment down. Because here's the reality. The moment we took our first breath, we were by nature sinners. God deserved to what? Cast us into hell forever. And then as we grew as little part sinners that we all are, and we became more deceptive, and more rebellious, and more hypocritical in our sin. God had every right to snatch us and throw us into eternal hell. But what does he do? Gives you breath. Let's the rain fall. He lets the sun shine. He gives you a mate, perhaps. He gives you a a job that is fulfilling, perhaps. He gives you children that bring joy into your life. He does all of that for unsaved, rebellious sinners. And when he's doing that, you know what he's doing? He's putting up with them with much patience. I don't know about you, but that's pretty sobering, pretty humbling. Well, why does he do this? Let me give you three reasons. Why does he do this? Three reasons why God delays his wrath and his long-suffering with sinners. The first reason is to display and and declare, to display and declare, because that's what this word show means. It means to display something and to make it known, his sovereign power to judge deserving sinners. He does it to display his sovereign power to judge deserving sinners. That's what happened in the Exodus. God said, I'm going to harden your heart, Pharaoh, You're a rebellious sinner, and I'm going to harden you in that rebellion. And as I do, I'm going to show my great power to judge sinners like you. And so plague one, plague two, all the way to plague ten. He delayed his wrath. What happened ultimately to Pharaoh? He was destroyed, and he was cast into hell. But God delayed that in order to show, this is how great I am. I'm greater than all the false gods of Egypt. I'm greater than Pharaoh who was worshipped as a god and who thought he was God and who had the the arrogance to say, who is the Lord that I should let his people go? See, I put up with that to show that I'm greater than that. He wanted to display his sovereign power over him and all the false gods of Egypt and he wanted to declare his sovereign power to judge all sinners to all sinners. You see, he wanted all sinners to know this is who you're dealing with. Someone who has the sovereign power to judge. And so what happened to the people in Jericho 
What happened to the nations of Canaan and the nations that heard of God's great judgment and how he went through this process? They they were quaking. They were like, whoa, that's not like our gods. You know, the God with the donkey head and the human body and the bird brain and the the human body. That's not, this isn't like, this, this God's more than that. So that's the first purpose. He has sovereign power to judge deserving sinners. But there's a second purpose. He delays judgment on the deserving in order to display and declare, declare his sovereign mercy to undeserving sinners. So he wants to say, look, the sinners deserve my wrath, and I want you to know that. But also sinners don't deserve my mercy, and yet I want to show that. So I have sovereign mercy. Now, Paul's already taught this purpose. Turn back to Romans 2.4. You're probably very familiar with this verse. Romans 2.4. He's already taught this purpose. Notice what he says. Or do you presume... On the oh, there's our word riches. He's been talking about the riches of his glory. Do you presume on the riches of his what? Kindness and forbearance and patience. So there's our word, the long suffering. Are you presuming on that? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to. The second reason why God delays his wrath is because he wants to show mercy to people who are equally deserving of his judgment but he's giving them opportunity to repent and place their faith in him. Now, Peter taught the same thing. Same thing. Turn to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, he taught the same thing. This is what God does. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is what he did in the flood. He told Noah, I am going to judge the earth. I'm going to show, but I'm going to delay that to show my greatness, but also to provide 140 years for people to repent while you build that crazy ark. See, God could have just brought the flood, but what did he do? He waited, and he waited, and he delayed, and at the same time, he showed mercy because it says, but Noah found grace, and please understand, God did not look at Noah and say, I think he's, out of all the bunch, he's the best. No, he chose him unconditionally. Noah believed. Let's look at 1 Peter 3. Notice what it says. 1 Peter 3, um, verse 20. Because they formerly, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So here's this delay. The many refused to believe, and were judged, the few, eight and all, received mercy, though they did not deserve it anymore. Rest to judge. Look at Second Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. Now he shifted from the, from the flood to the second coming. And the second coming is predicted, and here 2,000 years later, it hasn't happened. And what do unbelievers say? Oh, it's not going to happen. God wasn't talking literally. Things, all things will continue. In fact, we will evolve into better things. Here's what he says. The Lord is not slow 
fulfill his promises. What is Romans 9 all about? Has God's promises? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is long-suffering, slow to anger towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In fact, look at Second Peter three fourteen through sixteen. Now turn back to, or look on down to Second Peter three fourteen and sixteen. Nestled in between these two passages, looked at at in. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Second Peter. Second Peter, turn 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 over one epistle to Second Peter three fourteen, sixteen. Paul's talking about the same thing. I mean, Peter's talking about the same idea that God delays wrath to show mercy to undeserving sinners. And listen to what he says, because I think he's referring to Romans. Therefore, beloved, since you look for the promise but delayed second coming, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And notice verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in, in, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Now, that's Romans 9. Yeah, I don't know if he's referring directly to Romans 9, but what he's saying is Paul's talked about these same things, and when he talks about it, it makes your head hurt. Now, if it made Peter's head hurt, Diana, don't you worry about your head hurting. If it made Peter's head hurt, And he said, look, I'm an apostle and I don't always get what God's showing to Paul. But what he says is, don't miss the big point. God delays his wrath so that he can show mercy to undeserving. And Paul knew what he was talking about. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1.16. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1.16. 1 Timothy 1.16. This is Paul's testimony. This is how Paul viewed his salvation. This is how Paul viewed his life. Listen to what he says. 1 Timothy 1.16. But I received mercy. Mercy means you don't deserve it. Mercy means you didn't earn it. Mercy means it wasn't your idea. It was God's idea. I received mercy, but I received it for this reason. That in me. As the foremost, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's saying, look, God showed me mercy. One pharisaical, murderous Jew. He showed mercy to me so that those other vessels of mercy, those Gentile vessels of mercy, would understand that God is long-suffering in order to save his elect. Now, purpose one and pur- or, uh, reason one and reason two of why God delays his mercy brings us to reason three. Reason three, that God delays his wrath. I'm sorry, delays his wrath. I don't think I said that right. The reason God delays his wrath is not only to show his sovereign power uh, to judge serving sinners, not only to show his sovereign mercy, 
to undeserving sinners, but to display and declare, declare the fame of his sovereign name to all people. Declare and display his sovereign name. And all I want to say here is this. Please understand that God's character calls both judgment. God's character involves both those. And he's merciful in his judgment and he's just in his mercy. And that is who our God is. Proclaiming his name. Vessels of, of wrath. Realize I have a sovereign God who's going to hold me accountable. Vessels of mercy will come to know that I receive that which I don't deserve. His name includes both the severity of judgment and the kindness of mercy. Jump back over to Romans eleven twenty two. We're jumping ahead to next year. Romans eleven twenty two. But this is a, a. He's still saying the same thing for three chapters. Look at Romans eleven twenty two. Here's what he says. Note then, what does he tell him to note? The kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen but kindness to you. That's God's glorious name. And here's the temptation to emphasize severity and become a harsh, rigid people that no lost person would want to be around or to emphasize his kindness to where we have no reason. Why leading by the Lord? Love wins. God's kind. But we need to deal with both because God is both. Minor purpose. But what's the major purpose? The major purpose is to proclaim his glorious mercy. To proclaim his glorious mercy. He says, look, all that judgment I'm talking about in verse 22 is for a greater purpose in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Now let's break down verse 23 and I'm just going to make comments about phrases. First of all, in order to make known. In order to make known. This is God's ultimate purpose in displaying his wrath. Is to make much of displaying his mercy to the undeserving. Here's, I, I, I don't know how to explain this. It's a mystery. All I'm saying is God saves through judgment. God saves through judgment. What happened in the flood? The world was judged. But what through that judgment, who was saved? Exodus, who was judged? The unbelieving, Egypt. But through that judgment, who was saved? Little Israel. The cross. The cross is a place of judgment. And yet through that judgment, what was the ultimate purpose? To be saved. Here's what I'm trying to say, beloved. If you eliminate hell and the judgment and the severity of God, you have just also eliminated the salvation of God. And if you try to have salvation without God's judgment, you do not have God's salvation. You have the false of a humanistic world. But what did he want to make known? Look at that phrase. We could spend a year expounding the riches of his glory. Whoa. See, here's what he's saying. I judge, and I don't cringe about judging, but what I want to put on display against the backdrop of my judgment is my great mercy. 
And you cannot appreciate my mercy until you understand my severe judgment. That's why the gospel is bad news first, then the good news. And the more someone understands the bad news, don't dwell on it. Get to the good news. But the less people understand the bad news, we got to make that clear to them. Paul emphasizes the worth of his glorious grace with the word riches. And then he says the vessels of mercy, he emphasizes the abundance of mercy that he has shown. Vessels of mercy. You're destined for mercy. And then he emphasizes unconditional election. Vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He's saying, I chose to show that mercy. Not based on anything you have done. Not based on your belief. Not based on your good intentions. Not based on who was your daddy and who was your mommy. Not based on what church you attend. Not based on how often you help old ladies across the street. Not based on anything that you... You're destined for mercy because mercy means you don't deserve it. Yet I'm going to give it to you. And here's where he's overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. And he breaks off. Verse 24. He breaks off at the end of verse 23. And here's some good application. What God and Paul have done in these verses is done two things. They have made much of God's glorious mercy. And they have proclaimed his glorious mercy to others. Listen, that's what we should We should be making much of his glorious mercy and we should be proclaiming that glorious mercy to the undeserving sinners, just like us, that we come into contact with, that we live next to, that we shop with, that we interact with, or at least we ought to be. And 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says this very thing, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Proclaim his name. Called, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And so the personal application comes in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Paul can't resist to make this personal. He's overwhelmed. And he uses the word calling, which overlaps with the word choosing. Those he chooses, he calls. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Those he calls. And whom he calls, justifies. Whom he justifies, those he calls do get saved. Those who are saved will be saved, will be glorified. So the calling there is a synonym, overlap, God's choice. But what does he? What, what's he make much of in verse twenty-four? He's called not only from the Jews but also from. The Gentiles, and that brings us to verses 25 through 29, which is the scriptural confirmation. Because all along, Paul has been wanting to prove, I'm not making this up. And by the way, again, I will say it again, and I will say it in every lesson. We're going through this series in a much more expositional, 
much more detailed, much more looking at the text, because I want you to know, and I want you to be convinced of what God has said, not what I have said. I want you to see it in your Bibles. And so for them, it was to see it in the Old Testament. And so once again, look at what he says. As indeed he says in Hosea, and as he has done all the way throughout, he quotes scripture that quotes, that has God actually speaking. Kind of like this double, you know, I, I, this isn't just scripture that I'm twisting. This is God's, what Paul's saying. So here he says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. I don't have time. I can't. I mean, again, you'd have to have a whole lesson to develop the background of Hosea. Hosea, great story of God's grace and mercy. Hosea unconditionally choosing a spouse who didn't deserve it, buying her off the auction block, a whore and a prostitute. We've got to get it in our heads. We're spiritual whores. We are spiritual whores when God saves us. We're not nice people. God saved us. Bought us off the auction block. And so what he's saying in Hosea, he says, look, if God can say to disobedient Israel, you're so disobedient to me, you're no longer my people. And yet, in unconditional grace, I'm going to say you are my people again one day. If I can do that with Jews, why can't I do it with Gentiles? I'm free. Show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Compassion to whom I show. So Israel, so Jewish believers or Jewish unbelievers, don't get on my back about God choosing Gentiles to be saved who are pagans and don't deserve it. If I can do it with Israel, believe me, you guys didn't deserve it. I can do it with Gentiles. That's his point, okay? There's more there. There's riches there. And then his second point is, I haven't forgotten about Israel. In verses 27, in verses 27 through 29, he's saying, look, this big rejection by Israel and only this small little remnant getting saved, that's God's word being fulfilled too. I said that. That happened back in, 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 in Isaiah's time, and therefore it can happen now. And then he comes with this powerful, whoo! He says this, well, first verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel are the sands, the Israel, there's a lot of physical remnant. There's a lot of physical seed, but only a small remnant is a spiritual seed. In fact, that spiritual seed exists for one reason only. Verse 29, if the Lord of hosts had not let us off, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and you get that? You get that? What he's saying is, look, when I judged you back there, you deserve to be wiped out and cast into hell just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And if it wasn't for my unconditional election and my unconditional grace and mercy, if it wasn't for that, nobody would be. Wow. Okay, so we end with this. Is God unreasonable to hold sinners accountable even though no one resists his will? No. Who are we to question God's sovereign right to accomplish his purposes? Unconditional election reveals the riches of God's glorious mercy against the backdrop of his long suffering. Folks, 
You're not saved today. You're hoping in anything of your own goodness, your own good works. Flee that and run to Jesus today. Be saved today because he has delayed his second coming so that you might be saved. Those of you who are saved this morning, be thankful. Because you and I are undeserving sinners like everyone else. That he, in his sovereign grace, has bestowed abundant riches of mercy. Otherwise, no one would be saved. And then thirdly, I would say to us that we should be humble. We didn't deserve to be saved. We are the undeserving. I, 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 want, I want you to leave with that. I are the undeserving. So be humble. There's nothing about us. There's nothing in us that is deserving of God's electing love. And then finally, we should be bold in sharing the gospel this Christmas. Because God, Jesus has not come, and because he has not come, then there are more to be saved. And those who are going to be saved will be saved, but they will be saved through the gospel and through vessels of mercy like you and I, making much of God's mercy and proclaiming that mercy to others. Amen. I'm telling you, this ought to liberate you in sharing the gospel with other people. Because God's sovereign over that. It doesn't depend on your right words and you doing the right thing. And some of us are overthinking this sharing the gospel to the point that we think it all depends on us. When in fact, it depends on him. Just get out there and make much of him. God will draw his people to himself. Let's pray. Father, we come. Your purposes are way beyond me. But the amazing thing is they include me. For which I am very grateful. Scattered throughout this class are vessels of mercy. But I fear, Lord, there might be those who have not yet placed their faith, bonded to God's elect. I pray they would understand that you have delayed your coming. Not delight the death of the wicked. You desire all to be. Saved.